You may be seated. And we invite any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. You can go through the door over here on the right side of the sanctuary by the flowers. Any kids who like to go to Children's Church. For the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. Take out a pew Bible, and it's last book of the Bible. You can't miss it. Revelation chapter 15. And this morning we're going to be studying verses 2 through 4. If there is a God, I can't believe that He would be a God of judgment. If God is real, then He must be a God of love, tolerance, and acceptance because I can't imagine that God would have anger or wrath or that He would throw anyone in hell or anything like that. Have you ever heard that objection to the Gospel? Have you maybe fought that objection yourself? As I think about the different objections to the Gospel that people raise in our culture, and in every culture you will find Gospel objections, I think in our culture that's got to be up there at the the top of the objections billboard. I mean, there's other objections too, but that's one that we sometimes hear. We, people just have a hard time imagining that God would judge anybody. And if you think about why that is, I suppose there's a number of reasons why our culture in particular is sort of allergic to that concept. Uh, one of them has to do with just how we've been conditioned to think about ourselves. You know, the self in our culture is, is very sacrosanct. So, so you know, we're, we're all about... Uh, we're told to honor ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to love ourselves, to uh, express ourselves, to forgive ourselves, to embrace ourselves. Somebody says, you know, I took a little time for me this week. And everyone goes, oh, that's so good. Oh. As if we just, you know, said we saved the rainforest or something. I mean, you're like, wow, you took time for you? That's the most important thing you could ever do. You know, of course, it's important to rest. Of course, it's important to recuperate. We're limited, and we need to trust in God, and we need to take time away from things. But, but, but you know, it's, that's not what people are saying. You know, what people say is that, that I'm the most important thing, and taking care of me is more important than anything else. So to think that God would judge me, it doesn't make any sense. Like, how could He? This is the self we're talking about here. You know, you know judgment in this kind of context is like, it's like trying to load Mac operating system on a PC. It doesn't, it just completely does not compute whatsoever. Uh, there are other reasons I think we struggle with the concept of judgment. We could probably list a whole bunch. You might even be able to think of some. Let me just give you one more for instance. I think another reason we struggle with the idea of a God who would uh, express wrath toward human beings is because we associate that kind of belief system with uh, uh, sort of radical religious groups that use violence to support their, their methods. You know, people who would kill other people in the name of their religion, we think, are the kind of people who believe in a God who would kill people for His own name. And, and so we think, well, that probably breeds religious extremism and violence. And so we, we think, well, God of judgment just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And I think even as evangelical Christians, if we're honest, we're kind of squeamish on this. You know, do we believe it? And we go, eh, 
yeah, I believe that, but we don't really emphasize it. It's kind of like, you know, that, that belief is sort of like the, sort of the, the odd uncle we all have in our family somewhere that we all know is in our family, but we just don't talk about uncle, you know, whoever, so-and-so, because they're sort of the black sheep of the family. So, so it's in our doctrinal statement, but we somehow hope that, secretly hope that people will not read the doctrinal statement. <laughs> we just don't want them to know that we actually believe this somewhere in our sort of evangelical belief system. You can see how problematic this is, therefore, when we come to the book of Revelation, which has so many uh, different, varied, and sometimes exquisite visions of the judgment of God. You know, you look about where we were in uh, the last chapter, in chapter 15 today, but for the last month we've been picking our way slowly through chapter 14. You know, look, just remember some of these images in chapter 14. Look at verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. An image of a global collapse that, that the whole human system collapses under God's judgment. Or, or even more vivid, oh, for crying out loud, verse 10, look at that. He too will, this is talking about someone who rejects Christ. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. He will be p- tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. You know, one of the most terrifying, vivid descriptions of hell anywhere in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. Or the text we looked at last Sunday, verses 14-20, to where the judgment day is now depicted as a harvest where a sickle is swung, the grapes are collected, and then the grapes of wrath, so to speak, are thrown into the winepress and stomped. It's grisly. It, it seems perhaps to our modern sensibilities barbaric. And, and so we think, how could God possibly be like this? And then here we have another text in Revelation. This one in today, Revelation 15, verses 2 to 4. Uh, certainly a, a theme of victory and redemption and triumph, but also this image of judgment. And yet what's so fascinating in our text today is that the people in the story who observe God's judgment, they don't respond by, by, by being squeamish. Instead, what, what do they do? We're going to see. They actually burst into song, praising God for what He has done. It's remarkable. Look at our text, chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. It says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So here we have in chapter 15, verses 2 to 4, really the conclusion of all the visions that we've been studying since chapter 12, verse 1. So chapter 12, verse 1 really reaches its conclusion in chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. And then chapter 15 also has the beginning of the next series of visions, and the two are sort of interlaced and interwoven together. So there's kind of a seamless transition between the two. But I just want to look at these verses. And here we have in verses 2 to 4 another, like I said, a vision of judgment of God's people on the last day standing in victory on the edge of the sea, the world having been judged. And and the, the text is drawing upon 
an Old Testament story for its imagery. So pop quiz, you know, what's the Old Testament story here that's being remembered and alluded to in this description of judgment? Is it not the Red Sea crossing where Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt? He led them to the very edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. Pharaoh musters his whole army and chases the Israelites down. And then what happens? God parts the Red Sea. They go through on dry ground. In fact, let's just read the story itself. Put a bookmark here. I want to take you back to the Old Testament background. It's in Exodus chapter 14. Second book of the Bible. Exodus 14, page 68 in the Pew Bible. And we'll sort of pick up the story right where the Israelites are trapped against the Red Sea with the armies of Pharaoh bearing down on them. And in this moment, God accomplishes a great miracle of the Red Sea crossing. I mean, really, the, uh, the, 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 Passover from, the Passover story followed by the Red Sea is like the cross and the resurrection of the Old Testament. It's the central saving act of God in the Old Testament. And so, in the same way, Christ has accomplished a similar victory in the New Testament. But let's go back to that original story. Exodus 14, verse 21. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters might flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, there's an image, huh? Just as the sun rises and light falls upon the land, at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and one on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. Great day of triumph and victory and salvation. In one fell swoop, Israel saved, Israel's enemies wiped out. In, In one dramatic, miraculous moment by the power of God. And so how do the Israelites respond? What do they do in reaction to this? They break into a musical number. <laughs> they start singing, you know. You know, they clapping, and here comes the singing and the celebrating. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and the rider He has hurled into the sea. And it's really a song of praise for what God has done. I won't read the whole thing, but just look at verse 11. Who among you, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? You know, Egypt had all of its gods. God of the river, God of the sun, God of this and that. 
They're not really gods. This is the real God. Who is like You, O Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out Your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Okay, let's go back now to Revelation 15. Look at Revelation 15. Notice the parallels. Revelation 15.2 I saw what looked like a sea of glass. So before God's throne is a sea. We saw that in chapter 4. And here's the sea again. So just as there was a red sea, there's a new sea. Interesting, the sea of glass is mixed with fire. Now how can water be mixed with fire? What does that mean? Wouldn't it put it out? You know, what, what does that mean? That there's fire and water. Well, it's, it's a symbol. It's uh, it's imagery. What is fi- the, the real question to ask is what does fire always symbolize in the book of Revelation? God's judgment. So the point is a judgment has taken place in the sea, just as it had in the Red Sea crossing. Notice that there are those standing beside the sea, just as the Israelites stood beside the sea in triumph. And they've been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name. So just as the Israelites stood victorious over Pharaoh, so on that last day, God's people will stand victorious over the beast. Uh, this, you know, we've seen him in Revelation 13. He's this image of, of sort of the world in hostile opposition to God. So, so in Revelation, you have the lamb and the beast. You either follow the lamb or you're following the beast, whether you like it or not. It's one of the two. So they're following the Lamb and they're looking down at those who follow the beast. It's interesting, by the way, when you look at Old Testament descriptions of the Red Sea crossing, it will often describe it as God slaying Pharaoh who's depicted as a beast, a sea monster, a kind of Leviathan lurking in the waters, and that God kills the monster in the waters at the Red Sea. Very interesting. But then it goes on... um, They're given harps. They sing a song just like they did then. And if there's any doubt whatsoever that this is an allusion back to the Red Sea victory, I think that doubt is put away in verse 3 where it says, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God. A clear allusion back. But it's not just the song of Moses. It's also the song of who? The Lamb. So we're not following Moses. This isn't Moses who accomplishes this victory. This is Jesus Christ Himself through His resurrection from the dead is the victor who will ultimately someday throw down His enemies forever and have them be drowned. So Christ will be victorious. So someday there will be a second Red Sea crossing. Or maybe that's not right. The last Red Sea crossing. The ultimate victory of God's people. Well, I want to talk about this idea of judgment, but first let me just, before we get to that initial question we asked, let me just make a quick pastoral application from this passage. Uh, I think one of the things that this means for us as believers is that we need to stay the course, stay faithful, and persevere and overcome so that someday we can stand on the shore and not be down in the water. Right? Look again at the text. Look at verse 2. Who stands beside the sea? It's those who have been victorious over the beast. Now that that word victorious, it's the same Greek word that's translated earlier in Revelation as those who overcome. So if you remember, remember chapters two and three, this, the letters to the seven churches. Every letter to the seven churches ends with "To him who overcomes, God will do this, that, or the other thing. God will give him this blessing. God will help him this way." So, so the idea here is overcoming. And, and as Christians, we're called to overcome the world, not through violence 
not through force or coercion. We overcome the world by being faithful to Christ in the midst of trials and temptations. Then when you have trials come into your life that test your faith, that sort of shake the foundations of your belief, that's when we have to overcome by trusting Christ and being faithful to Him. When you feel pressure and resistance against your Christian life, you know, when you go to your Memorial Day barbecue tomorrow, uh, and, and you're going among family members where they all kind of look at you funny because they think you joined a cult, and, you know, you're, you're like the only Christian there, and, there's, and it's almost like, why don't I even go? Or if I go, how about I don't bring up the Lord at all? And it's just so, so much tension in my family or whatever it is, in your workplace, in school. When we feel that pressure against us as Christians, we have to overcome by being faithful to Christ and not capitulating, not giving in and blending in with the world around us. We have temptations that come at us as Christians. The beast is throwing allurements to sin. We all have different things that tempt us to sin. You know, for some it's, it's uh, uh, worldly pleasures, for some it's lust, for some it's food or drink or pride or worry or whatever it is. And, and so we're always being tempted back to sin and we have to keep resisting and overcome temptation by trusting in the power of Christ in our lives. So, so this is the challenge of the Christian life. It is a long marathon following Jesus. You know, I think sometimes we want to think of the Christian life as a series of mountain type, mountaintop highs. But in reality, there's a lot of time spent in the valley just trudging along. And there's those occasional mountaintops, but faithfulness to Christ is a day-by-day thing. But we need to overcome because someday, what's going to happen? The sea's going to crash together. And you want to be on the shore on that day. You don't want to be down with the Egyptians in the bottom. On that day, it'll be quick and sudden. Everything will be reversed. We look at this world and we think, you know, why do I even try? Everything's against me. But on that day, it'll all be flipped in a moment. So we need to stay faithful to Christ now and and not give up. Where are you being tempted to compromise today? Where am I being tempted? Where, Where are the weak spots in my walk with the Lord? Let's redouble our trust in Christ and call upon Him and keep pressing forward in our faith and not give in to our our lusts and our temptations and to the world's pressures, but stay faithful to Christ. Because the judgment's coming. So, back to the original question now. How can we believe in a God who would judge? Here we have another terrifying image of judgment. As if the lake of fire and hell wasn't bad enough, as if the trampling of the grapes wasn't bad enough, now we have an image of drowning. How can God do that? I mean, it just... It seems so amazing that he would. And, and then notice again that the people respond how? By singing. They're singing. Let's make this more personal. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ on the judgment day, you will respond by singing. You'll be rejoicing at that great day of judgment. Like, What? How can that be? We won't be squeamish on that day. We won't be sort of embarrassed and explaining away, well, we know God gets like this sometimes, but uh, let's just not talk about it. We'll, we'll be like, praise God! You know, our praise for Him will erupt when we see the great judgment day. So how could this be? I mean, l- look at the, the contrast in the text. Just think about the contrast between the song that we will sing someday on the one hand and the way the world thinks of the, the topic of God's judgment on the other. The world thinks of God's judgment and says it's a terrible, bad thing that we shouldn't talk about at all. 
But look what the saints say. Verse 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. What God has done is great and marvelous. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. How different the, the response. The world looks at God's judgment and says, that's so unfair. That's so unjust. That's so morally repugnant that God would judge. I mean, we, we can't even, should not think about God as judge because that really is, is, is bringing God down morally. We're, we're thinking of Him as less than He should be. A truly moral God would never judge. And so we think really we're, we're talking bad about God. We're, we're perhaps even blaspheming to think of a God of judgment. But what do the saints say on that day? Verse 3, Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. So the saints standing on the edge of the sea look at the whole scene of judgment and they say, that's totally fair. (laughs) That was the right thing to do. That was just. That was morally consistent and upright. In fact, if God hadn't done that, that would have been unjust and unfair were God not to judge in that circumstance. That on that day when we see everything clearly and we see the judgment of God, there's not going to be any of this need to write apologetic tracts to explain God's behavior. Everyone will just go, I get it. You're right, God. You are true. You are righteous. Everything you do is perfect. You are the holy, awesome, and just God when we see Him. When the world thinks of God's judgment, it laments. But when we see God's judgment on that day, we will praise. Look back at verse 4. Who will not fear You, O Lord, and bring glory to Your name? You know, In other words, when we see God's judgment, rather than squeamishly turning away, we're actually going to amplify our praise. It's amazing. Like This is a reason to praise God. That when we finally see it, we'll say, I thought I had reason to praise you. Now you just gave me one huge reason more. I'm going to write a whole song about your judgment because you're so worthy to be glorified. It evokes worship. Or look how the whole thing ends. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's holy judgment will have a magnetic quality to His followers. It's drawing people from all the nations to His his character and His glory. So there it is. What a contrast, huh? Between how we think of judgment and how they're responding to judgment in this text. So here's the question then. Where's the disconnect? Clearly something is different in the way these two parties think about God's wrath and His, His curse. Some are thinking it's bad. Others are rejoicing and praising Him. So what is it that they're seeing that we're not seeing? What is it that they get that we don't get that's changing their perception? You clearly have two different lenses or two different worldviews here. Something's missing in mine or different in mine that I'm not seeing it clearly that they're seeing that makes them respond in such a radically different way. What is it that they're seeing that's changed their perception? And the answer, I think, is there in verse 4. Who will not fear You, O Lord, and bring glory to Your name? For, because, You alone are holy. It's the holiness of God that I just don't quite grasp 
in my limited understanding. His holiness. What does it mean that God is holy? What is His holiness? Well, holiness, the basic idea of holiness is that it's something that's holy is something, the root concept is it's set apart. It's something treasured and valuable and awesome and numinous and wonderful. And so we set it apart. There's the common things and then there's the holy things. And the holy things are, are, are protected from the common and the common is protected from the holy. So it's the idea of something that's so sacred, wonderful and good that it, it exists in a separate category so that there's a distance between it and the common and the regular and the profane. And so in this case, God is that holy one. He alone is holy. Uh, in God's case, His holiness is its kind of like the sum total of all of His moral perfections. So all those things that we read about, His justice, His righteousness, His truthfulness, His faithfulness, every wonderful thing that makes God God and makes Him glorious, you can kind of say a sort of assumed up into His holiness. And His holiness is that, that, that center, that, that essence of that which makes Him Wonderful and praiseworthy and awesome and precious and valuable above all things. Infinitely worthy of praise. That's His holiness. And He's morally pure. There's no sin in Him. There's not even a hint of sin. There's not a hint of lying. God doesn't lie. God doesn't break His Word. God is everything that He does is pure and right. God is so holy that even though the angels are holy, and even though when we get to heaven someday we'll be made holy, even though we're holy now through the, the, the righteousness of Christ, yet even in heaven, He's so holy that among the holy people we might, we'll still be saying, you alone are holy. Like that's how holy His holiness is. That ours is just kind of a reflection of that, and, and it's sort of by virtue of His and what He's done for us in the Lord. And yet we could still say, you alone are holy, God. And so what I think that they're seeing that we're not seeing is, is how valuable God is. His infinite worth and His infinite holiness. I was thinking of trying, somehow to try to illustrate this, this kind of paradigm shift, this, this aha moment where you go, oh, God is different than I've been thinking of Him. I was thinking about this TV show. Have you ever seen this TV show, Antique Road Show? I don't know, this may be a lame illustration, but... Um, you know, it's kind of a lame show. You know, people find all this bric-a-brac in their attics and their basements and they bring it in, you know, like some person finds like their great-grandmother's ceramic like chicken cookie jar or something, you know, and they bring it in and some expert on that says like, you know, actually this is not just any ceramic cookie jar, it looks like a chicken. This is actually, you know, do you want to know how much it's worth? Yeah, I want to know how much it's worth. This will actually go on the market for fifty to $60,000. You know, the person's like, my lands. You know, it's just <laughs> amazing. So what you used to think was just some junk in your attic is now like the most valuable thing you own. And you're like, woo, boy, I, I just carried it here. I didn't even put it in any plastic wrap. I, oh, I, got, I have a $70,000 heirloom, right? And so I think, you know, like I said, it's kind of a lame illustration. Like, so take that and sort of multiply it infinitely to how we'll finally see God someday. Where we'll go, I, boy, I just thought you were sort of my personal kind of heavenly buddy, but you are holy. There's no one as valuable as you. You are glorious beyond anything I ever imagined. You know, what's heaven? It's getting to spend all eternity unpacking the infinite worth of God. And it takes infinity to get there. 
And after 10,000 years, like, I think we've just scratched the surface of how wonderful God is and awesome as we go higher up and higher into His glory. Or let me use another illustration, maybe a little less uh, silly, a, a more serious illustration. You, you know, I think about the, the change that takes place uh, that um, crisis pregnancy centers use to help women who are in crisis pregnancies, where they use ultrasound machines to show them the baby. Um, you know, if, uh, I don't know if you've ever worked with crisis pregnancies or you've ever been in one or known someone who has, but, you know, when women are in crisis pregnancy uh, and they're thinking about having an abortion, they're not in a philosophical frame of mind. It's just terror. It's like, my life is ending. I'm going to have to drop out of school. I'm going to be so humiliated. What if my husband finds out? I mean, it's, it's very much a, sort of a, a terrified frame of mind. And, and, and they're just looking for help. And so what will happen is sometimes crisis pregnancy centers that are really there to try to protect children and help women is, is what they'll try to do is they'll really try to get the woman to have an ultrasound. Why? Because they know that if the mother can see a heartbeat, can see little hands, can see a little shape of a person, can see little eyes, they'll suddenly go, this isn't a problem. This is a person. You know, but they need to see it. You know, this is one of the great uh, lies of the pro-choice abomination. That, that it's just the woman's body. It's not just the woman's body. There's now some body in the woman's body. Another person. Another human precious life. And, 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 but for women to see that in, in that crisis... They kind of need to see it sometimes. And so that's one, one of the things pro-life uh, things people do. It's great. It's like, look, this is what's in you. And then that maternal instinct that God has hardwired into every woman kicks on with power. And they go, whoa! You know, now it's Mama Bear protecting her cub the way it should be. Because they've seen, oh, there's a precious life. And that's how it is when we see God. We're going to say, oh! You know, the worship instinct that God has put in me that my sin has suppressed will suddenly kick in full force as a believer renewed in the Holy Spirit. And I will go, He is awesome beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And I'll be snapped back to sanity as I see the glory and majesty of God. Except that the difference is the preciousness and value of a, of a baby is just a tiny little shard reflecting the infinite majesty and worth of God. That, that the beauty and, and sanctity of a newlywed couple, say, on their, their wedding day, is but a tiny dim reflection of the beauty and sanctity of God and His glory and His love for His people. That, that the, uh, the wonder and sacrosanct, sacrosanct nature of the rainforests, with all the diversity of life and the endangered species there, is just a tiny reflection of, of the worth and value and beauty of our God that we'll finally see someday that we just don't see clearly now. And when we see God in His holiness, we will then see ourselves in light of it and realize that His judgment of us is completely just. That in fact, His judgment of sinners is an expression of how pure and holy He is. And we'll rejoice in that day. You know, because we'll say, look at who God is. He's upholding what is right. On that day, I'll finally see that I, you know what? I think I've lived my entire life for my own glory. 
God is the, the center of all things. He's the one toward whom my whole life should be directed. And then I realize that I've lived most of my life directed toward me. I mean, it's repugnant. You know, we'll see that, that we have committed a crime of infinite vileness and putridness because I've not glorified Him. But I've, I've taken the most sacred thing in the universe and I said, well, I don't even know if He exists. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm mad at God. <laughs> like, what? Mad at God? It's preposterous. Preposterous. You know, He's God. And on that day, well, you know, I'll look at my whole life and I'll be like, wow, even the things I did that I thought were good had a, a tint of selfishness in them. And, you know, I'll look at all the times I've slandered people or taken the Lord's name in vain or been angry or had outbursts of anger or were filled with lust or pride or greed or, or, or you know, was sexually immoral or whatever. Whatever it is, I'll just look at my whole life. And then to think that at the top of the cup of wrath, the cherry I put on top is this illusion that, well, God would never judge me. I mean, that's just the, the final straw that we would even intimate such a thing, that He had no right to judge. And so on that day, nobody will be able to accuse God of wrongdoing. When God judges finally, nobody will be able to say, God, you overdid it. Because it will finally be clear. His infinite worth. My infinite rebellion. And the question we'll be asking on that judgment day is not, how could God judge anybody? The question we'll be asking is, why is anybody standing on the shore? Why is anybody saved? Who's worthy to stand with the Lord and sing His praises? Ah, but this is no ordinary song. (laughs) This is the song of the Lamb who was slain. And it's because it's the song of the Lamb. If it was just the song of the angels, I could never sing it. If it was the song of the righteous people, I could never sing it. But I can sing the song of the Lamb. Because Jesus Christ on the cross paid for my sins. He took God's judgment so that I could be set free and forgiven. The Song of the Lamb includes the verses in chapter 5. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and I'll close with this. Revelation 5 verse 9. This is part of the Song of the Lamb. Revelation 5 9. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. That's why He's the Lamb. He's the sacrificial Lamb. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. God's called us to be priests for Him. Every believer is a priest. And one of the priest's jobs in the Old Testament was to sing God's praises and to glorify Him. But how is it that we became priests? Because Christ's blood saved us. And so the saints will rejoice in that day at the judgment of the world, not because they have a vindictive, sick desire to see people suffering, but because God's glory will be revealed in all of its majesty. And we'll recognize that the only reason we're standing on the shore is because the blood of the Lamb has washed us clean and forgiven us. God will judge all sin, either on the cross with Christ, or on the judgment day, we'll bear it ourselves. It's one or the other. 
So the question to ask ourselves this morning is not, how could God judge anybody? The question is, have I laid hold of Jesus? Have I, have I embraced Christ? Is the song of the Lamb in my heart? Let's pray.